0: Hello, my name is Miguel Resendiz. I'm a marketing professional, entrepreneur, and the host of this podcast, MidCast, a program where we discuss how to monetize your talent, ideas, and show examples of people who have successfully done so in the past. In this podcast, we aim to bring the best business and life insights to help you materialize your goals. An open mind will go a long way in this program, so fasten your seatbelts and get ready for the show. Um, Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to one of your favorite podcasts, MidCast. Today, I have the pleasure to talk to Chris Terz. He is uh, the co-founder of SalesPrimer.ca and also a business coach. I met him uh, as a business coach in Venture Labs and Venture Connections at SFU, and he inspired me to get more into the technical aspects of marketing and try to cross-function finances with marketing. So how are you, Chris?
1: I'm doing great, Miguel. Thanks for having me today.
0: Well, thanks for coming. I really appreciate your time commitment, and honestly, uh, the notes that you made were very organized, and it just speaks to the to the um, mission that you have of teaching. You know what you what you have learned so far, and that's why I wanted to have you here. You're a very well knowledge, uh, very well spoken and very very knowledgeable um, person in the business in the business world in general. So you are the co-founder of business of Sales Primer, right? That's and, correct. Yes. Yeah. And how does that work? Tell, tell us a little bit about it and where did, it, where did that come from and where is it now?
1: So uh, thanks for that, Miguel. Yeah. Salesprimer.ca is actually newly launched uh, and it's coming out of about six years of consulting with early stage startups. Salesprimer.ca is actually a very simple software application. Uh, along with a consulting practice that uh, my co-founder, Colin McQuinney, and I uh, established. And it's meant to help first-time entrepreneurs uh, and early-stage founders to really understand what it takes to build a repeatable sales engine behind their innovation uh, technology or startup.
0: Okay. So um, that sounds... I mean that sounds incredibly good. So Colin is um, also he was also Adventure Connections. Am I am I correct?
1: Colin has done uh, he's done a lot of work in the Vancouver market helping early stage startups. Um, he's been a guest lecturer in the SFU uh, circuit, uh, teaches at BCIT, mm-hmm. um, has founded his own practice uh, going on about twenty years now, CanadaStartup.com. and he and I have been working as a team for oh easily six seven seven years. And again, Sales Primer is sort of what's come out of our experience in helping um, early stage entrepreneurs really overcoming their fear of numbers. Uh, One of the things we've discovered is there's a lot of great sort of uh, literature on the softer skills as it relates to building a company, uh, Mm -hmm. launching an innovation into the market, But we find it's curious. We find many entrepreneurs really tend to shy away from some of the harder topics. And probably the most difficult topic for many is taking a close look at what we say their numbers. And usually that's about their sales model and how they're going to generate revenue with their um, innovation and then their financial model and translating that into a tool like a pro forma that you would take to investors to help raise funds. Yeah. Uh, and so, a lot of what Colin and I have been working on over the years is is finding ways to simplify and systemize your approach to your sales engine and to your financial modeling uh, and and to help people get over that initial fear and intimidation.
0: I see. Um, when i I have been reading about startups and and businesses in in general because I'm pretty interested on that. And I, I mean, in this podcast, I have talked to a few as well. So, the, the main question when you talk about the numbers, um, there's a lot of emphasis in numbers a lot of the times too, uh, and I think that can, that can lead to maybe o- over focusing on features uh, in the product and focusing maybe on on the on the hard skills as well. And I think it is or not hard skills, but like on on these. Um, analytical part of the business.' Um, there, in, a, in a startup when they're smaller, I think there needs to be a, a balance between someone that's trying to keep the, the the team dynamics afloat and then someone that's trying to keep the business uh, or the analytical part in check, right? So how do uh, I mean, first of all, how do you think um, a, a student who wants to start their own his own business, his or her own business? How do you think they should come about it? Like when they're finding their first partner or like when they're planning on, on launching their product? How, how should that process be from the beginning?
1: You, it's a great question. And, and to be honest with you, Miguel, I mean, the, the irony is the, the, the more years I uh, spend in this space, the more I realize that um, there's a lot of different ways in which <clears throat> startups and innovations evolve. There is no one single kind of primer or template for success. Um, and as we all know, uh, you know, they often say 50% of it is, sh- is sheer good fortune, a matter of timing or just the right circumstances. But I think the, the very first most important thing you would need to do, whether working alone or, or most especially as you start to build a team, is make, make absolutely certain you have built or developed something or are in the process of creating something that, that uh, an audience really wants to buy. They, they not only want it, they're willing to pay money. And we often talk about that as that early customer discovery. And there's many entrepreneurs I've run into who even make the mistake of trying to build out something too early. Um, and, and often, you know, some of the greater innovations that we're seeing in the market are, are being developed by engineers, technologists, um, software coders. And of course they're built and trained to be, you know, very sophisticated builders. That's their instinct. That's what they try to do. But the reality is that the better approach is to say, look, I've, I've got an idea. I've got a concept, but let me actually just sit down with some human beings that I think represent my target market and make sure I'm on the right track uh, and, and make sure that they're really getting excited. Uh, about what it is I'm developing and that it's directly either addressing a problem um, or a real appetite that they have. Uh, And that's absolutely the first step that you need to take. Um, And and it it doesn't take too many conversations to get there. There was a quote um, that I heard one entrepreneur tell me at one point in time said, you know, you're going to, you know, you've got something because you suddenly feel like you're getting picked up in a tornado. Uh, and the conversations you have, and, and usually whatever your target market is, I mean, it can be as few as 10 conversations with people you think represent your target market. And you're not just looking for people to say, hey, yeah, that kind of sounds interesting. Yeah, I might look at that when you get it developed a little bit further. It, usually what you find, and I've been through it myself, is if you're really onto something, people almost jump across the table at you and say, if you could get this to me yesterday, you, know, you would save me so much trouble, or I would buy 10 units of those tomorrow if, they, if you could make them available to me. It's that kind of exuberant language you're looking for, and that's really the first step before you look at anything else, including the numbers. You're absolutely right. You need to start off by just saying, do I have the right product market fit, and am I doing an adequate amount of customer discovery to make me feel comfortable that I've actually got something here?
0: That, that's really step one yeah so i mean in in school they often teach us that we need to look at the at, at the user journey and at, at the user personas and it is really interesting to see that basically this is what it translates to you need to see who your ideal customer is and then cent, you know center it at the at, at the, center it at, at at the middle of the segment basically because um, one of the one of the things we we look in theory was that you will never have like you know like a bunch of people that fit your persona, but there will be people that w- that will share characteristics with that persona. So uh, these characteristics basically are predictors of purchasing. And and once I once I looked at this, then I I kind of realized why the the current fintech industry is so successful, because uh, the fintech industry is is oftentimes funded by people that i mean they're just people that need to solve problems for themselves we have an uh, an example with uh, lumen wire is these are uh, people that were uh, that, that that had a problem themselves right and then they understood the journey then they were they will be customers themselves of that company right and 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 everybody they spoke to about this everybody wanted it so um, we have other fintech, fintech companies in the world like Mocha and uh, TransferWise, where these companies were funded by people that had issues and they just said, like, okay, I'm tired of this, I'm just gonna fix it. And and I think they use I, I think a lot of these people don't really know that they need to focus on the on the customer, but they since they are so close to the customer, basically they are the customer. I think they they're they're very successful at at implementing these uh these new startups?
1: Well, and Miguel, you know, that's a, re- that's a really good place to start. For many, if, you were, if you're really fortunate, and probably one of the strongest positions to start with as an entrepreneur and innovator, is that if you actually set out to solve a problem for your own sake, and you came up with a solution... Uh, somebody who's wired to be an entrepreneur, usually the very next question they ask themselves is they say, well, wait a minute, this worked for me, but how many other people are out there just like me who are dealing with the exact same problem? And, you know, and once you start looking at that question, I mean, if it turns out you have a very unique problem and you're, and you're in a particularly unique situation, well, then in reality, you may have just created a, a, a solution that's very specific to your own situation. On the other hand, you may determine, and Lumenwire, of course, which I know well, is an example where, uh, well, in actual fact, it was about you know delivering online financial services for the international Persian community and very unique challenges. And you know these handful of students who first founded the company started to realize, well, wait, wait a minute, there, there's tens of thousands of us worldwide who are probably struggling with the exact same situation. And they knew for a fact there wasn't another solution out there that could do quite exactly what LumenWire did. Well, that, now you know there's the potential for what we refer to as repeatability and scalability. So if you come from that place yourself, if, if you're ultimately addressing a problem that you yourself are facing day to day then that that is the next natural question to ask is to say wait a minute how many how many more of me are there out there and if you start to realize it could be a big number um you know then that 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 begins to tell you there could be an opportunity but even still you you want to start going out and talking to 10 or 12 or 15 other people to say hey here's my crazy idea uh does it work for you too and and that's all part of those beginning steps in your customer your customer journey.
0: I, there was a book that my one of my professors recommended, where I'm gonna mention the name later of the of the book because I don't have it on top of my mind. But basically, uh, this book talked about um, user user discovery and how how it works is, you know, go talk to people that you don't know because all your friends will tell you, yes, I will buy that. Or, yeah, that sounds really cool. Or, you know, you'll be with a, with, with a group of people that they just don't want to hurt you, right? Even if your idea is shit. That's why we see a lot of people uh, joining pyramid skins. You know, they just are afraid of, of insulting or offending their friends or their family members.
1: Really, absolutely. Really good point. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, it usually starts with you talking to a couple of colleagues that you might know because it's, you know, everyone's time is super busy. uh, And if you if you genuinely need a good 20, 30 minutes, maybe even an hour to have a deep dive conversation about what it is you're trying to do and achieve and and the problem you're trying to address initially it's a bit difficult to just call cold call a stranger uh, first off you may need to practice a little bit what it is you're saying and and you know you you've got to start to script script the right kind of questions to be asking so sometimes it does start off by going to a warmer colleague but you're absolutely right there is a point at which you need to you need to completely stop that and you need to switch gears and and go to an absolute stranger that's going to be the real test as to whether you're onto something because now Um, now it's about being as efficient and and as respectful with that person's time as you can be, which means you kind of got to get straight to the point and say, look, this is, this is the problem I think is out there. Do you have the same problem? If so, this is the solution. What do you think? Is this, is this better than anything else you're dealing with right now? Hopefully they say yes. Then you say, well, to what order of magnitude? And they might say, well, Jesus is 10 times better than what I'm currently doing right now. And if they start telling you something like that, then you know you have an opportunity to generate revenue with this idea. But you're right. You ultimately need to switch gears and, um, and start talking to strangers. Miguel, one thing I'd add though, you, you mentioned different books. Uh, I mean, one of the books I was a real eye-opener for me. I'm, I'm constantly uh, trying to research new and better practices. And, and one of the great books I read was Sprint, by Jake Knapp, who worked for many years at Google Ventures, and uh, it's a fantastic book on customer discovery and early stage product iteration. And, and certainly, he messages again. He says, "Look, you know, when you're when you're prototyping, don't you don't necessarily need to build out something overly complex. Number one, uh, you know, just do a, a rough sort of prototype. If, if you do even need a visual to put in front of an audience." And secondly, he found after literally working with hundreds of startups uh, and, and their customer discovery process, he found that you know whether you're on the right track with as few as five conversations talking to absolute strangers. And the math is pretty simple. If three out of five seem to get lit up and excited about what it is you're doing, well, then you're probably on to something. And then obviously you want to you build upon that. But, but, you know, startups, as you well know, they don't, they don't have big budgets for uh, in-depth, quantitative, quantitative market research. So you just got to start off taking those simple steps and talking to five, maybe seven, maybe 10. And you'll know pretty quick, you combine what Jake Knapp said with that tornado effect, uh, and, and, you know, if you sit down with somebody and in a matter of 20 minutes, you see, a lot of it is about body ma- language and emotional response. And if you see people really light up, uh, and kind of jump across the table and say, geez, like I would be on, on top of this tomorrow, if you can make it available, you know, that's when you start to know your instincts are starting to tell you, oh, I'm onto something. Um, and, and then you begin that iterative journey and start fleshing out the hypothesis a a, a little bit more and a little bit more, both as it relates to, are you really talking to the right target market? Because often it takes a little bit to determine what your beachhead is, but also as it relates to what your true product strength and value proposition are. Because even that, typically changes you you kind of set out having those first five conversations on the customer journey thinking you know what the strength of your solution is but even that tends to alter a little bit Um, and so you want to allow those early stage would-be customers you want to kind of put it in front of them and then you want to be quiet and you want to let them tell you what it is they really value in it in their own language and again those are where you start getting the clues as to whether you're on the right track or
0: not. Yeah, the I just figured out. I just remember the name actually of um, of the book. Uh, you you mentioned talking to strangers, so the book was talking to humans. Actually, so talking to humans by <laughs> by Keith Constable, and yeah, it was a really good book. And I had it for a class, and it was a mandatory reading. But I think um, this this is just a I think this is a mandatory read for any anybody who's trying to to start something because it. It really talks about that, about the whole thing that you, that you just described. And look, um, I think that's something that sometimes entrepreneurs are missing, just understanding their customers.
1: Miguel, I, uh, I love the title of that book, actually. That's fantastic. I should, uh, I should make sure I pick up a copy and read it. But uh, it's funny because one of the notes I prepared for our conversation today was, um, in my mind, a, a critical part of success is not about understanding technology and understanding the different things in the world that we run to. It's it's all about understanding humans. At the end of this day, no matter what it is you're doing, somebody somewhere along the line needs to adopt it and they need to pull out their checkbook and pay you for what it is you're doing. And that decision is driven by a human being. And more often than not, part of the decision they make is actually uh, driven by emotional criteria. I mean, we quite often talk about things like it's important when you start to model out who your ideal target persona is. You know, we talk about the functional buyer, the end user. We talk about the economic buyer, the one who's cutting the check. We talk about the technical buyer, who's really kind of breaking down precisely how a particular solution or technology will fit in with the rest of their um, platform um, or environment. But again, the, the more years you've sold and marketed product and service, um, as I have, I mean, it's been a good 25 going on 30 years now that I've been a professional sales, a sales rep marketer. You realize at least 50% of the decision almost every time is, is, is driven by emotion at some point. Uh, and that's all about human beings. So the more you step back for a second and think about your audience and think about how a human being is gonna respond emotionally and functionally and economically to what it is you're putting in front of them. um, In many ways, that's far more important than the nuts and bolts of your widget or gadget. Um, So you're absolutely right that, and that all begins with customer discovery. As soon as you have an idea, don't, don't get lost in the product and the features and functions. Um, don't start building away, locked up in a in, in a science lab somewhere, or or up in a closet. Like, get out there and start talking to people, and, and make sure you're on the right track.
0: So, so we have right now touched on the person or the human side of the business, but uh, it, it is equally important, I think, to understand your numbers. You know, uh, learn your uh, as you will say uh, your cocktail napkin numbers, right? And right. Uh, I think that comes from from, from the fact that a lot of these businesses are usually uh pitch in a in a coffee in a coffee shop or something right so you, you need to be able to do this in a in a napkin that's quite interesting and quite funny but um <laughs> uh so tell us how how would you begin to do that then how would you begin to start analyzing your numbers as a, start, as, a as a young entrepreneur right like the, um i think a lot of people often freak out because it is really difficult to translate what they learn in school about, about finances or economics or, you know, any, any simple math to their, to their business because they just don't know how to analyze the data.
1: Yeah, and it, it is. It's a, it's a bit of a dance and it takes a while to, uh, to sort of get it sorted out in your head. Uh, I think the first thing I'd recommend, and it's why I, I often talk to entrepreneurs about just beginning the rough with those cocktail napkin numbers. Um, don't feel that you need to build out this comprehensive five-year financial model. You know, we often call it a pro forma um, on, a, on a 10-tab spreadsheet. There's no need in jumping into that right away. Just look at the basic math behind your business. And, and this happens in terms of when you begin to do this. Again, we spent the, the, the beginning of this podcast talking about the importance of product market fit, um, that customer uh, discovery journey that, you know, you need to go through. Uh, and, and really, as soon as you have a spark of inspiration and, and a bit of an idea about an innovation and a problem you're trying to solve, you know, you get out there and you go through what we typically call market validation training, right, which is um, set up uh, a series of questions that you put forward to a small sample size of would-be customers. Once you get a sense that you may be onto something, then you might do a very lightweight prototype um, to provide further visual cues um, to, your, to your target personas to make sure you're on the right track. But at the very same time that you're doing market validation, you want to switch gears and you, you want to begin looking at what I call your financial viability. And it's, it's really a two-part process. And again, it's very simple. The math in the beginning is very simple. The first thing I'm going to ask you is, do you understand your unit economics? And this is very much a term that angel investors, those first early investors often look at uh, and use. And and Miguel, it's real simple. It's do, if you think you've got something that people are going to buy, do you know roughly uh, how you're going to price it? And most importantly, how much profit you can make off a single sale or transaction? Um, that is the most Critical first step, because I can tell you there's no, there's no way you're going to be able to ever make a profitable company if you can't, first and foremost, determine whether you're making a profit off a single transaction. And that may sound really straightforward, but you'd be amazed at how many entrepreneurs I've worked with over the years who they get very excited about their idea, their concept. Uh, they may be doing all the right things as it relates to market validation. Uh, and then they start building things out. Um, but they haven't taken a moment to step back and say, well, wait a minute, what are, what are the costs associated with this business first and foremost? How am I gonna price this roughly? Uh, is there a comparable business out there that has a pricing model that sort of looks similar to what it is I, I might be able to, to do and to charge? In which case, how much gross margin am I making off a single transaction? And then that usually leads to the next question is that if you understand how much money you're making off a single transaction, then the next thing I ask you is, okay, well, how many of those transactions, how much volume of business do you need to break even? Because milestone number one is all about survival state. Like, do you clearly understand what it's going to take to, at the very least, get to a self-sustaining position uh, where you're surviving, uh, you're, you're able to meet payroll, uh, and you're able to keep your entire team in, in food and, and, and in rent. And so I, I often say it's learn to survive and then figure out how to thrive. But all of that begins with a very simple understanding of what your numbers might look like and, and whether you have the potential to price what it is you're doing in a way that's going to make a reasonable profit um, and get you to self-sustaining. Those are the first sort of few steps you need to take from a financial perspective.
0: That makes sense. Um, a lot of the times, I mean, um, I see startups just hoping that uh, soil equity will be enough, right? But people need to eat and need to pay rent. So I think that's one of the hardest parts for for startups to just keep people afloat, right? Because if you don't if you don't maintain people living, I mean, it, it is really difficult to find. People that will volunteer um, in in this in your startup, unless they believe in the cause and they're like, yeah, like this is something I really want to help. You know, like activists, like activists do, right? They they volunteer their time and they're incredibly passionate about it. And that's one way that you can do it. The but but at the same time, this this is a job, right? Activists don't. Most activists don't work eight hours a day for 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 their cause. They they use. You know, some hours here and there, maybe their weekends. But yeah, um, another thing that I was uh, that I was trying to get in here is how do we, how do people figure out their cost structure? Because I always hear that, or I have heard many times, that investors prefer a variable cost structure than a fixed cost structure. So they prefer more variable costs uh, for the company than fixed costs, and. I see that adva- I see the advantage of variable cost because in the, because it is able to keep the company afloat for for um, for a longer time, especially during crisis. But uh, fixed costs can be also very cheap if you if you sell a lot, right? If you have like, I don't know your fixed cost and then you, you manage to sell a lot and reach your market uh, or like the majority of your market and have a, a very big competitive advantage then um that's that's also very promising w- which one would you go for for startups or, or like for entrepreneurs
1: yeah Miguel look that's a that's a great question and again, I would sort of say look every every startup, every innovation, every business idea it's 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 all very different and it's it's all about context. I think at the end of the day we we start off with the question again, it goes all the way back to the beginning do we have we identified a problem or maybe a, just a very large appetite? I mean, on the, on the B2C side, when it comes to consumer goods and consumer consumption, quite often, a lot of money is made not off addressing a problem. It's just off um, addressing uh, mass volume appetite on, on the part of consumers. But whatever it is, whether you're solving a problem or whether you're, you're appeasing people's appetites, the question is, do you have something that clearly has the potential um, to sell uh, in volume and and or be highly lucrative. Um, After that, the business models behind all of these kind of innovations and solutions are are all going to be very different, right? I mean, the first big one is, is it a digital product or is it a physical product? I mean, if you're selling software in the beginning... The costs and the risks associated with building out some software and then beginning to kind of test people's appetite and the market demand through through a bit of a lightweight initial digital marketing and social media marketing engagement, along with some lightweight um, outreach sales effort, all things considered, there's relatively low risk and low costs associated with that. On the other hand, if you're manufacturing a physical device, there's going to be all sorts of upfront R&D costs associated with that. There'll be repeated prototyping. Uh, then you need to get into manufacturing, and that's going to require acquisition of raw materials, warehousing of raw materials, warehousing of finished products. It's a much more complicated process um, with a lot more risk and a lot more cash uh, requirements up front. Uh, but on the other hand, if if we're talking about the manufacture of you know iPhones um or or really popular devices well the reality is you know it's a huge huge market um and there's an opportunity to make real money Uh, so i'll circle back by saying i don't think there's any right or wrong way Uh, this question was kind of triggered by an observation that you had mentioned investors make you know where investors prefer there to be um in balance more variable costs than fixed costs well It's natural for an investor to say that because in the world of investors, they want lower and lower risk and greater and greater return. Like that's what everybody wants. That's the dream, you know, completely eliminate risk and and increase uh, your return at an exponential rate. Well, that's all fine in theory. Um, But at the end of the day, again, there's any number of innovations that um, have the potential to generate incredible revenues, but it's just the business and operating model doesn't necessarily uh, mean that they can uh, reduce fixed costs and, and, and put everything on balance on the variable side of their income statement. Um, I would put it back to, to you and say that some of the investors out there who make those observations are maybe the kind of investors who don't necessarily have the funds or the means or the experience to invest in um, bigger, riskier uh, ventures that do require a lot of cash expenditure up front and, and uh, represent a little bit more fixed costs and a little bit more risk upfront. So it kind of all goes back to what kind of investor are you talking to? There's some investors who only have a few million dollars to play with. There's other investors who are managing funds that are worth hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars. So if you're talking to an investor who's, who's got a billion dollars to play with, or managing a fund that represents a billion dollars, that conversation is going to look very different. Um, I'll use as one last example, Miguel, I mean, we talk about the drug manufacturing industry, right? There's an example where there's incredible amounts of money made off the pharmaceutical industry, you know, but typically the runway for that is a minimum 10 years to get a product fully tested and approved for, for commercial use. Right. Um, well, that's a lot of fixed or let's call it sunk cost up front. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a lot of investors out there that specialize. They have the means to invest in that. Um, they specialize in, in pharmaceutical product. And if you come to me one day and tell me, I think I've got the cure for cancer, it's going to take 10 or 12 years to get it to market. Well, pff, there's going to be people out there who are willing to spend the money to, to make that happen. So it's all very much relative. Um, and one of the things I would say as, to you as an entrepreneur is whenever you're having a conversation with an investor, do your homework on that investor. Because there are all sorts of different investors out there. Some have lots of money, some don't. Some invest in software, some invest in physical device, some invest in B2B solutions, some invest in B2C solutions. And each of those investors becomes a bit of an expert in their own market and their own space. Um, So make sure you're talking to the investors that understand what it is you're doing. And they call it smart money. You're not just looking for money, you're looking for the people behind that money who are kind of smart in the sense that they understand and get what it is you're trying to do uh, and as a result they're going to kind of have the patience and they're going to have the advice and be able to mentor you in a way um, that's really going to help you out
0: yeah oftentimes you see in, in shark tank for example that the that the the founders of these companies they only go there to get the money right they just want to have someone in the team to go to to actually invest, but but one thing that I have realized, I mean, I have seen um, founders that ignore all the sharks except for one, and then they they go for Mark Cuban, for example, and then the other the other sharks are like giving them offers, and then he's, they are like respectfully declining, and they're like no no no, uh, and they're just waiting for Mark Cuban to say something, and then uh, and then it it is because their business fits uh, Mark Cuban's business, right? I mean, it's a technical business, uh, probably IT or something. So usually uh, I think the same way you target your customers, you need to target your investors. A hundred
1: percent. Well, and, and again, let's go back to um, your experiences with Lumenwire. And of course, again, I had the, the privilege of, of mentoring Lumenwire um, uh, for a couple of years while they were at SFU Venture Connection. And and again, it was the same with, I know there were a number of times where they were pitching uh, at certain angel forums um, here in Vancouver. And, and quite often, um, there'd be a room of, say, 20 investors in the room. Well, you know, 18 of them didn't even fully understand what it was they were doing. They didn't appreciate the scale and opportunity that was being represented by Lumen Wire. They, you know, they didn't understand the business model. They just didn't believe. Uh, But at the end of the day, I, I, I can remember of one situation where they walked away and they had the business cards of one or two investors who, quote unquote, got it. Uh, because one of the investors actually kind of came from the community they were trying to serve. And I would call that a success. I mean, it's you're generating lead just as, as a B2B sales representative is looking to generate and qualify leads to sell a product. You're doing the exact same thing when you're looking for investors. It's just, you're not selling a product, you're selling your company. Um, But it's the same thing. You need to pre-qualify your investors. And in that particular case, um, you know, out of a room full of say 20 investors, they only found two really that kind of got what it is they were doing. And were willing to have a conversation, but two out of 20, that's one out of 10. Well, look that in the world of outbound selling, that's about the ratio. You're, you're pretty happy if you're hitting a one in 10 ratio, when you're doing outbound calling and and targeting suspect leads, that's, that's, it's just the numbers. It's the rule of the numbers, right? It's just a numbers game.
0: Yeah, and I mean the number, the numbers game is the thing that rules everything. I mean, you you want to make sure that you understand what uh, what are your odds of getting an investor and also of getting people to to consume on your regular business. And um, one of the things that I think we need to talk about now that we're discussing the financials and the beginning, uh, there's there's this state of survival that investors need to not investors sorry founders need to be able to understand and we 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 touched a little bit on this earlier you know you need to make sure that everybody in your team can pay rent they can pay groceries and obviously you know have a uh, have a decent salary to be happy at the moment so there there is that's one aspect of it but then there is this other survival state right you you need to to keep improving up on your services especially if you're a SaaS company you need to keep improving uh, because you probably will have a um, agile system where you are just improving and hearing feedback and everything. I I have met quite a few investors who start start to listen to feedback um, very well at the uh, at an early stage, and then and then for some reason I think it may be because of of cons- cost constraints they they stop listening and then they just you know, try try to finish the product as it is, and then they and then they they get stagnated. I think, and then they're not, they're unable to jump the chasm, you know, to cross the chasm. What is that? Is that a common thing, or has that been just my luck that I have seen in in the past couple of years?
1: Well, that's a bit. I mean, that's a bit of a big question, Miguel. I mean, because at the end of the day, every look, every startup, every founder, every founding team, um, each journey is going to be a little bit different and a little bit unique. Um, I I think what the important lesson always is that um, you need, when you you set out on a journey, it's about the understanding the destination Um, But then also recognizing that over the course of the journey, you know, you may end up needing to take a detour or two. Uh, um, And as cliched as that is, um, that's precisely what happens when you set out to to not only bring an innovation to market, but to build a company, right? Because there's two things going on. You're building a product or innovation, but you're also building a company around that product, and your sales reps are selling the product, but potentially you as the founder, maybe one day selling the company, right? So first off, those two things are happening in tandem. Um, but then what, what I always try to do, especially when I'm coaching first time early stage entrepreneurs and founders is say, look, what you need to be mindful of is that each and every startup goes on its own unique journey, but there are some basic milestones that every startup Needs to achieve in order to succeed and and quote unquote make it whatever that is, uh, and the first one is you know number one have you found have you truly found the right product market fit and have you identified that there is a very large addressable market that you have an ability to um, directly approach um, and, and attain customers that's number one number two once you've built out your minimum viable product I mean. Are you, are you getting a sense of what a repeatable sales and marketing engine looks like? Have you gone through after customer discovery and after evolving your product? I often say as a sales and marketing guy, the next thing you need to do is make sure that you have a, um, ta- you've gone through tactical discovery. And by that, I mean, you figured out that combination of sales and marketing, um, activities. That is generating repeatable sales. Right. So that's milestone number two. Milestone number one, product market fit. Milestone number two, um, building towards a repeatable revenue engine. Then we're getting into the big milestones. The first one we've talked about, how much volume, once you have that repeatable engine in place, how much volume do you need to achieve just to be self-sustaining? right? Because as much as we're passionate about our business and our innovation, passion doesn't feed the stomach. Passion does not put a roof over your head, right? You need some cash to survive as individuals, not just as a company. Once you've hit that milestone, then really what you're talking about is your growth trajectory. Have you been modeling out what growth looks like for you? Um, and, And why this may sound sort of silly, but um when you put a growth rate to your financial model and your financial projection why precisely are you choosing a particular growth rate um because the question for you is are you are you looking to build a company that you could be potentially holding on to for 10 years and you want to become the dominant player in the market well then your growth rate over five years may be pegged to a destination that is to become, to, to, to capture 35 or 40% of the market, you know, because that then makes you the leader and then may put you in a position to acquire other companies um, and so forth and so on. So, so then your growth rates uh, and your growth trajectory is pegged to becoming the number one in the market and a dominant player. Right. But on the other hand, your exit strategy may be about getting acquired by somebody else. You may recognize that there's another dominant player out there that you're never really gonna, you don't think, have a chance to surpass. And if anything, the story may be very different. It may be that you recognize you've got a very specialized product or innovation that that dominant player out there uh, may be interested in acquiring off you at some point in time. In which case, your growth story may be simply about demonstrating an incredibly uh, rapid rate of adoption by one or more markets. So then what you're talking about, your growth multiple is talking about, well, what are you trying to demonstrate in the next three or four years? That you're doubling or tripling your customer base year over year for three years in a row. If you are able to demonstrate that on the books... That's going to get the attention of some people who may look at you and say, wait a minute, they've just built something that that's really taken off like a rocket. Does that product or innovation fit into our larger portfolio of offerings? Maybe we should be acquiring them. And so I'm speaking of like the Microsofts of the world or the Googles of the world, you know, that go out and acquire smaller, very fast growing startups. But Miguel, I guess it, would, it, would, it all goes back to sort of saying, well, first off, what's your end game, you know, and, and is your end game to become, it, it's really kind of boils down to two things. Either uh, you want to become number one in the industry and you want to become the next Microsoft or the next Google in, in, in the vastest of wildest dreams, or you want to build something. That is so compelling and so fast growing that somebody else picks you up. It's usually one or the other of those two. Um, once you figure out what that is, um, then your growth story and, and, and everything you're trying to mobilize in terms of resources and cash is about hitting the growth metrics that will enable you to achieve either 40% market dominance um, or a growth multiple that is so fast and so compelling. Uh, in such a short period of time that somebody comes along and acquires you as long as you're mindful of that as the end game then basically everything else that you're doing um, is trying to drive you towards you know one of those two scenarios
0: so there so that makes a lot of sense and when one, one thing that I wanted to kind of touch on now that we're talking about like um, a little bit about the invest investors and also the growth strategies or like the milestones that you need to touch on. A lot of people are looking for investors, not necessarily for their investment, but they're looking merely because of their um, knowledge on the industry or their experience. So um, ha- yeah, I think a lot of people are trying to get um, investors who will mentor them more than just invest in them. And maybe because of that, they may give a really cheap price to the investor at the moment or a cheap valuation just so that they can get him. Right. So, how, how should people go about it when they need a mentor and when they know that this person will certainly be a mentor, but then they cannot, uh, they don't really know how to go about it. Like, it, how difficult is it to, to, to get uh, like a counselor or a coach? And as a, as an, as an you know,
1: it's another really good question. And actually, as you, yeah, as you ask me that question, I, um, here's what I would put to you. Uh, because you mentioned mentor and coach in the same breath as you mentioned investor. And I think what I'd like to do for this particular question is actually split those two to begin with. And I'd say as an, as an entrepreneur, especially if you're a first-time entrepreneur or founder, um, the very first thing you want to do are find mentors and coaches that have no vested interest in your business whatsoever. Um, these are individuals who you can trust, ideally individuals who have had the experience and are, you know, a few steps ahead of you in their professional development and their entrepreneurial development. And the reason why is because there are going to be situations as a founder and entrepreneur, um, where you need frank, impartial advice about either a strategic aspect of your operation or a tactical aspect of your operation. And you wanna be able to get candid, um, straight advice from them without it being clouded by money or cash whatsoever. And so the question then would be, well, where do you find those people? Well, I mean, Miguel, uh, you, you know, you found me through SFU Venture Connection, which is an incubator here in town um, Uh, in Vancouver, Uh, and of course our sister organization is SW Venture Labs, which is an accelerator for more mature, um, fast fast developing startups. That's certainly one place that you'd wanna go to, would be um, just try to identify incubators and accelerators in town, Almost all of them have um, a small complement of entrepreneurs and residents, mentors, business coaches of one kind or another. And these are people who usually come with a breadth of experience. They have some subject matter expertise. They might be a sales specialist, a marketing specialist or, or you know finance specialist, but they both also often had some direct experience in, in being part of a startup. And these are people who, you know, that they, they, they want to give back. I, I want to give back to the community, and I do that through these incubators and accelerators. And I can sit down and have some very frank and partial advice with you on any number of subjects, from fundraising through sales, marketing, operations. That's that's the first place you want to look at. The second one is just talk to fellow entrepreneurs. And, I mean, in, in every community, there's usually either – Social networking opportunities um, where you can where you can just connect with other entrepreneurs and and sort of get their advice and feedback. The academic community is the third one. Um, you know, there's a lot of obviously there's a lot of professors out there at SFU, B. D. School of Business. You know, there's a lot of very seasoned professors. They may be academics, but many of them actually have a, a, a business background as well, uh, and may be able to share advice for you, or at the very least, share some literature for you. So that that's the first thing I think you want to be absolutely certain that you do is find mentors and advisors who have no vested interest in your business whatsoever, because they're going to give you the straight goods. But then we get into actually finding investors. And again, that goes back to the discussion around what we often call smart money um, and try to find those investors out there who they have the money. They're excited about what you're doing. Um, They've got the money to invest in your company and when I say they've got the money to invest in your, money, uh, in your company, one of the things you want to make absolutely certain you understand about this investor is that um, you know, not only are they able to cut a check um, to support your business, but they actually have a significant fund behind them. Um, one of the things you want to look out for as investors is there's a lot of people who get into the, the investment game who actually can't afford to get into the investment game. And by that, I mean, it's like managing any other portfolio of investments. Truly successful investors of startups are ones who understand that they need to diversify their risk uh, and that they, they need to hold multiple positions across many different startups, because the reality is quite a few of those positions, they're going to fail. They're not going to make money off it. Um, and so as a result, they, they have an extensive portfolio. And in order to have an extensive portfolio, it means you need, at the very least, you know, uh, de- depending on how much each position represents for you, if you're cutting checks for twenty-five dollars or $50,000, then I would want to see you have a be behind a fund that's at least in the low tens of millions. Um, if you're cutting checks that are in the six-figure range, then it would be great if you've got you know maybe the low hundreds of millions of dollars behind you. And the reason why I say that is because you as the entrepreneur will get an idea of how many positions they can afford to hold... Um, And as a result, how diversified their overall portfolio is. If they don't have a diversified portfolio, if it turns out they invest in you and you're only one of five companies they've invested in, because that's all they can afford. Well, Miguel, you can probably guess where this is going to go. They're going to start to panic because if it turns out all five of the startups they've invested in are not doing that well, um, they haven't properly diversified their risk. And then they're going to start getting into very hard conversations with you as a founder with your startup because they're going to be asking you about um, time to execution. Why is it taking so long to get the next version of your product to market? Um, let's start taking some shortcuts here and there. Um, you know, l- let's start to do other things that are comp- compromising your operations and finance. So it goes back to our earlier conversation about it's really important for an entrepreneur to properly vet uh, and qualify the investor. Does the investor actually have the kind of money that's required to invest in a startup? Are they willing to lose that money? I mean basically outright, if they even cut a, a check for as small as 25 or fifty thousand dollars as an angel investor for an early stage startup, can they truly afford to and be willing to completely lose all that money? Because it may very well happen, right? That's number one. And then number two, if they're getting into it at that level of risk, then do they actually understand your business? Do they, have they invested in your kind of solution or market before? Have they been a founder themselves? Do they understand the pressures that you've been under, you're gonna be under as an entrepreneur and founder? So it's a pretty, it's, it's far more than just looking for somebody who can cut you a check for 25, 50 or hundred thousand um, dollars. There's a lot more homework that needs to be done in order for you to find that right mix.
0: So what do you think then about the people who get as their first investors their family and friends? I mean, um, I think that can lead to very awkward conversations too, maybe some very unpleasant dinners as well in Christmas.
1: Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, they always joke, it's family, friends and fools, right? And uh, again, um, if you're, and it's very common, by the way, and it's perfectly legit for you to raise your first, it might even be as little as $50,000, you know, in small increments of 5000 or 10000 here and there between relatives and friends. Um, and, and you just need that initial amount of money to kind of, you know, buy your, I always joke, buy yourself ramen and Red Bull, uh, you know, pay for a couple of software contractors and, and just get that first prototype up and running so you can demonstrate it. Um, whatever it may be. Yeah. I mean, again, it goes back to the fact that, you want to have a very frank dialogue with, with those uh, family members and friends to say, look, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you have faith in me and you're willing to cut a check for $5,000, but are you absolutely certain that you can lose all $5,000? Because this right now is at the highest point of risk That any startup can ever be this could completely collapse in a matter of three months and we all need to walk away from this. So if you're giving me $5,000, are you willing to walk away from that money today. uh, And, um, and make the commitment and take the risk. Uh, And so again, it goes back to asking whether these people can genuinely afford the $5,000, you know, if you have a grandmother. Who's got five million dollars stowed away, uh, and you know she lives in a small apartment and has very little appetites? Well, five thousand dollars is probably not to, a lot to ask, but if your grandmother's a pensioner and as much as she loves you, Miguel, you know, five thousand dollars represents three months' worth of her allowance. Yeah, I don't think you want to be talking to your grandmother about that. You know, so yeah,
0: yeah definitely not. And um, that's that's one of the very important questions I think because I know you know some people have a hard time saying no especially to their friends and family and 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 that's where a lot of awkward uh, conversations start and and like you know it almost feels like you're asking for free money right because um I know a lot of there's Kevin O'Leary he was talking about people asking him for like investment in his personal circle like his friends and family and he was like look I'm gonna give you two hundred thousand dollars what you ask me or whatever but you you you're not allowed to ask me again right and you're you you do not need to pay it back basically um, it's a it's a gift and that's it so I think once you're that rich um, you'll get a lot of these uh, so-called pitches for for companies and a lot of them are obviously gonna be unsuccessful and the only way that you can keep you know yourself at peace is just, doing it one time, but make sure that you're frank, you know, I'm not going to do it again. Uh, so this is your your time. But it, for most of us that are not like multi multimillionaires, I think it is really hard to just, you know, put $5,000. I mean, if, if you ask me, uh, can you put $5,000 in this business that may fail in five months? I'll feel like
1: probably not. <laughs> I won't be able to put that money. Um, well, and you know what, it again, Miguel, it kind of goes all the way back to the, the very first um, a couple of questions we, we went through in the, the beginning of our conversation, which was all the way back to customer discovery and market product fit. And, um, you know, testing that innovation in the beginning and knowing that you're getting sucked up in a tornado, um, the more confident you are in the beginning that you have something that really could lift off uh, and, the, and the more quickly you begin to validate that, even if it's through a series of sort of pilot partners and anchor clients who are, you know, they may be not paying full market rate, but, but you're realizing it, wow, they're, they're willing to pay money pretty quick for what it is I've got and, and it's only even half built, right? Those are situations where you, you've only got so many data points to work with, but your guts and your instinct are telling you that, geez, like, like the, there could be something here. Like I've, I've only kind of put not half effort into it, but I've only even just sort of accomplished half of what I need to do from a validation perspective. And I'm already generating some, some pretty extraordinary interest. Well, if you If you think about it, Miguel, I mean, again, what you're doing when you're going out and raising money is you're selling your company and you're selling not just the product, you're selling the fact that you can build a company around this product that could be generating millions of dollars within a matter of three, four years. Well, if you're seeing that level of validation in the beginning, which is really, to be frank, what you're looking for, um, then the reality is that there are investors out there who do have lots of money. Uh, and so as soon as they see an exciting story, um, th- that's what they're looking for, right? It, it, it's I'm not necessarily saying that you can walk into a fund that's worth $100 million and be able to sell them right away. But what I am telling you is that investors are running a business model like every other business, and they're looking for leads. And their leads are early stage startups. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, they have to sift through a lot of startups in order to find what they would call a promising qualified early stage startup. If you've done your homework and you've done the right amount of customer discovery and you're starting to validate at an early stage, uh, an opportunity to really turn this into something. Well, then those people with the, the bigger checkbooks uh, are going to get sort of excited about that pretty quick. Uh, and so as a result, you may not, if you're lucky you may not need to be asking for checks of 5,000 and 10,000 from your grandmother you know you can kind of jump into the bigger money pretty quick cuz they're going to want to they're going to want to support you these these more affluent investors are going to want to try to support you and drive this as quickly as possible so that everybody can get a return
0: yeah another way of getting funding and this is possibly especially for small um, startups the best option to get funding and i think this is by getting government grants and also joining a venture uh a venture lab like i mean venture connection venture labs like a venture um how do you call this like a accelerator like an accelerator yeah yeah so like how does that work how how do accelerators and the government grants and organizations help startups you know launch
1: uh, well, there are, I mean, there are lots of different accelerator models out there in North America, and I'm most familiar with North America. In, in some instances, the accelerator, uh, I mean, first and foremost, again, accelerators typically offer uh, coaching and, and mentorship, which should never be undervalued, because typically, especially when companies start to get to that point where they need to scale, there's a lot of complex Uh, business challenges that founding teams need to work through. Um, What does it take to scale your physical operation? What does it take to scale and grow um, your sales engine? Um, Raising money again. Uh, It's one thing to be raising $200,000, $300,000, $500,000. But when you get to a point where you um, are starting to really see that rapid, accelerating uh, opportunity and growth, well, now you need to start raising A million, two million, five million dollars or more. Um, And uh, those conversations start getting a little bit more complex. Um, The documentation, the financial modeling, the legal implications tend to get a little bit more dense. Um, And so it's great when you have an army of mentors and coaches that can help walk you through um, what's required to navigate that part of your growth as a startup. And again, the best place to go is is find uh, an accelerator or an incubator. Um, Often there's a membership fee associated with it, um, but I can tell you in most instances the membership fee is well worth the market rate of the the consulting and and coaching that you're going to get. So that's that's step number one. Step number two, most accelerators and incubators also uh, provide programming of one kind or another, you know, one hour, two hour, three hour, Um, workshops and information sessions on any given uh, topic especially changing best practices around things like you know how to sell and market um, for a b2b product in the 21st century I mean you know there's new technologies new platforms new new practices and tactics um, constantly on the move and so accelerators and incubators probably try to do their best to to provide programming to kind of catch you up to speed and then um, some accelerators either have a fund behind them. Uh, not all, but some accelerators have have a fund. And in fact, in some cases to be admitted into the accelerator, um, part of the commitment is that the accelerator basically invests in you um, and will actually, You know, provide you a certain amount of funding, whatever that may be. It might be 50,000, it might be 100,000 or 25,000. And they effectively invest in you and have, you know, have a small percentage of the company. But not only are they providing you expertise and also potentially a roof over your head. I mean, in many cases, you're actually provided a small amount of office space at a subsidized rate, but they are in effect an investor in you. If, on the other hand, the accelerator does not have a fund, Um, There's two other ways in which accelerators may be able to help you uh, find money. Many accelerators are actually affiliated with, with an angel fund or angel group of some kind. So as an example, here in Vancouver at SFU Venture Labs, there's a very strong strategic partnership between SFU Venture Labs and Vantech. Vantech is one of the more active angel groups in the Vancouver area. And so where SFU Venture Labs in and of itself does not have a fund, Um, it kind of serves as a vetting ground um, for Vantech. If SFU Venture Labs, um, you know, and and we're constantly dealing with applicants all the time, well, you know, ultimately those applicants that we feel are suitable for the accelerator, that immediately becomes a bit of a pre-qualification for the members of Vantech to start looking at this company as well. So you sort of, accelerators often serve as a bit of an endorsement. Um, the last thing you can look for with accelerators, not all do it, but some of them do, um, is they will put on, um, annual contests or even quarterly contests, pitch, pitch events that are often sponsored and there's prize money behind it. And the prize money may be, you know, 25,000 or a hundred thousand, or I believe it's Waterloo in Ontario. There's an accelerator, I believe associated with Waterloo that has a million dollar. Uh, prize. It's once a year, uh, last I checked, but the, the prize money, the, the grand purse is for a, a million dollars. Um, so those are a few different ways in which accelerators provide you uh, not only expertise and programming, but potentially subsidized rent if you're at that stage where you, know, you don't necessarily want to you know, go out into the commercial uh, leasing market quite yet. Uh, and, and then directly or indirectly, they can be a source of funding as well.
0: that's well that's great um i knew about a little bit about accelerators because again i was with you guys in venture connections but um i didn't really get to feel the entire experience since i didn't begin with Looming wire at the stage of applying and everything um right now last question i wanted to ask you and this is a question i ask every guest um in order to get some really interesting insight from you guys and this this i often don't prepare you for this because i want to I want to get you um, just, you know, out of your comfort zone a little bit. So give us five pieces of advice that you will give yourself when you were 18 Wow, that's good.
1: Um, Well, I think the first one is, um, the absolute very first one is that uh, time runs out in a hurry. And there's one currency you can never buy back, which is time. And so every waking hour that you have in a day do your absolute best to take full advantage of your time. You know, especially if you're, um, if you're healthy and you're in a situation in life where you've, you know, you have a bit of a luxury to, um, pursue some education, um, and, and, and pursue a passion. Um, Don't waste the hours in the day because they, as cliched as it is, they start to disappear after a while. The the older you get, the faster times move and sand goes through the hourglass. So even at a young age, I mean, I would look at, uh, you know, I, I look, I had, I had a lot of fun and I've had a a pretty active and, and, and entertaining career so far, but there's definitely some hours and some afternoons that, you know, I probably misspent that could have been, uh, you know, better used. To, uh, to create, cultivate, and, and contribute. Uh, so that'll be number one. Um, number two, and this is something I actively do, but I would tell everybody, is um, life is about constant learning non-stop. Um, and it's not only, and, and however you may do that, whether it's through podcasts like this, whether it's reading books, whether it's popping on a YouTube video, but uh but not only um are you i guess what i would say and this kind of ties into item number three not only should you be constantly feeding your brain with you know as many things as you possibly can um the the third thing i would say is in the beginning in life it's often about finding something to specialize in usually you need to make your mark and usually you need to to start by finding something that gets you really excited and then getting really, really good at it and specializing. Um, But here's the trick. You also, if you wanna be a leader in life, no matter what that position may be, whether it's as an entrepreneur and founder, or whether maybe you you just wanna pursue a a senior position in an established organization, or maybe it's a not-for-profit or a charity or what have you. um, I always say to people, specialists are often responsible for building innovation. But generalists are responsible for building and managing companies. And that's a really tough transition for a lot of people. And it usually, if you want to be serious about being a successful leader in life, that transition really needs to begin in about the middle of your career, typically, let's say in your late 30s, early 40s, um, if not earlier, But you need to begin to train and equip yourself to understand what it takes to operate and think as a generalist. And by generalist, I mean like literally a general manager or even as in a military general. And the reason why I say this again is because specialists focus all of their time and effort and, and education and learning on going deep on something, on really understanding every layer of something so they become an absolute expert. And again, usually great innovation comes out of that. But in order to lead, and this kind of goes back to our earlier comment about true success is about understanding human beings, not understanding tools, technology, and and things in the world. And that really is about being a generalist. It's really about stepping back for a second and kind of understanding the larger world context um, and and really focusing on things like uh, history uh, and culture and people and teams and how people and teams will work differently and language and how each and every day we all use different languages and i don't i don't just mean you know farsi versus french versus spanish versus english i mean literally the language of a software coder is going to be very different from the language of a digital marketer or a cpa and accountant and so if you want to assume a leadership role um, then you need to be kind of mindful that at some point I need to be capable and, and, a, and be able to speak to a breadth of topics um, with a breadth of people who may speak very different languages and look at things from very different perspectives. So that's, that's item number one. So uh, item number three. So, so number one, really be mindful of your time uh, and be as productive as you can and as effective with your time as possible. Number two, um, always be in a state of learning. Uh, number three, that means then that, uh, especially when you transition into a leadership role, um, if you've become really excellent at something as a specialist, at some point, you need to think more broadly as a generalist. Um, which then we'll get on to, I think, point number four, which is the best way to tackle fear is to, to address it dead on. And by that, I mean... Uh, and I'll borrow from um, I'll borrow from another great work that I recommend. I recommend anyone read this work, but especially if you're an entrepreneur and founder. Uh, Miguel, you and I have talked about this man before. Chris Hatfield, Canadian astronaut, who wrote a book called "An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth." And in Chapter Six, which is probably my favorite uh, chapter, uh, chapter's entitled uh, "What's the Next Thing That Could Kill Me?" And he literally talks about his journey in outer space and and his journey. Training to be an uh, to be an astronaut is once you get yourself up there, um, whether it's the International Space Station or or maybe one day a journey back to the Moon. I mean, you are you are in the most challenging, most dangerous environment that you could possibly put yourself in as a human being. That or or potentially being two miles uh, under the ocean um, and. And so you are in a constant state of of risk and danger, which means you need to be aware of all the different things that could potentially happen to you, and then begin to think through what are the different ways to prepare for it and to mitigate it. Well, what he learned very quickly is that the best way to manage the anxiety and the fear around all of that is to Um, address each one of those dangers and risks dead on and become knowledgeable about what it actually represents for you. And with knowledge uh, comes a sense of confidence, right? The fear is always going to be there, but you're going to be able to manage that fear and anxiety a little bit better when you tackle it dead on. So, So Miguel, what does that mean for the average person waking up? As I'd say, especially as a leader, when you wake up every day, We all have those one or two things right now that are intimidating us. There's always those one or two things that we know we need to tackle and we don't actually know a lot about it. And as a result, we're kind of avoiding it. Um, We're being intimidated by it a little bit. And the, the sooner you can train yourself to make that the first thing you do in the day is to do something to get your head wrapped around it and to address it dead on. Um, the more effective you're going to be, the more confident you're going to be. And, and of course, the irony is, again, as Chris Hatfield says, um, the sooner you become informed about something, the sooner you develop knowledge about something, um, the fear and the anxiety sort of gradually moves to the back of your brain. So that's a muscle and a practice and a habit you need to develop in life, whether a leader or otherwise. So that'd be the fourth point is, you know, going from specialist to generalist, you know, which then means, well, what do I need to learn and develop? Um, You know, the fifth and final one, you know, what would be, uh, I think Miguel, it would be um, do whatever it takes in life to maintain perspective about what's actually really important. Uh, And part of that is about allowing yourself to take a break And I see it most, especially with entrepreneurs uh, and founders is naturally enough, you're going to get lost in your business and you're going to be working 25 hours a day, eight days a week. And that's going to lead to an incredible amount of stress and fatigue uh, and probably poor health, um, you know, bad diet. And when you're younger, when you're in your 20s, maybe early 30s, you can do a heck of a lot to your body and your system and still push through it. But eventually that's going to catch up to you right? And certainly as you get older, I mean, you've got a lot, we all have lots to offer in our later 30s, 40s, 50s, and even 60s. But you got to be good to yourself, which means as cliched as it is, you know, you got to make sure you're giving yourself a decent amount of sleep. Um, you got to make sure you got some sort of a healthy diet and a bit of exercise. But the biggest one, again, is about perspective. And it's about allow yourself to take your moments to get away from it all and find those things that center you, um, and that kind of recharge your batteries. And that could be anything from playing a team sport. Um, you may enjoy music, and you may have an instrument. You know, Give yourself that hour to learn a new song on your guitar or the piano, whatever it is. I love art. I sketch. I love to draw. And I love to make sure that I have a few hours in the week that I put on a little music and I sit down with my sketch pad and pencil and just lose myself in, in art. Um, you know, whatever the craft may be, um, or just go for a walk, go for a hike. You know, if you enjoy nature, you've got to do that for yourself. Cause it'll, um, it recharges you. It kind of, I always say it such a brain straight. Um, it's amazing after you've gone for a one hour hike and lost yourself in nature, that problem that you've been chewing on for the last week that's been bugging the crap out of you, it's, it's amazing where all of a sudden the solutions start hitting you right away if you allow your brain an opportunity to just kick back and relax for a minute. Um, so that would be the fifth and final one. It is, is give yourself a break from time to time and kind of step back and smell the roses and realize there's a lot more to life, including your family and your lo- loved ones. There's a lot more to life than just trying to make money and trying to make your startup a success. If you lose that perspective, it's kind of all for nothing. Um, y- y- you'll, you'll end up being a pretty tired uh, and, and fatigued uh, person, I think.
0: Yeah, I, I think I heard uh, Conor McGregor once said that um, he's not looking for more money. He's just looking for inner peace. Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> and that speaks volumes, right? Because he has yeah. a lot of money, but he doesn't want the money. He just wants inner peace. And I think that's something that we often forget about. You know, you don't really want the money. You want the peace. Uh, actually, yesterday while I was walking, I, I I had this realization that we don't need uh, the money. I mean, the reason why we think money makes us happy is because every time ta- the more money we have, the more uh, uh, dopamine shots that we can get in our brain by buying things. Yeah. And that's just, you know, like you're you're addicted to that dopamine shot. But in reality, what makes you really happy is to be to be uh, to feel su- uh, successful in, in the way that you that you define it, right? Uh, whether success means having a, a prosperous family, whether success means to be able to help your community, but that inner peace that comes with that with that meaning of success is irreplaceable by money.
1: You're absolutely right. The, 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 the mad race for cash. Um, and we all often do it. I certainly was guilty of this in the beginning, um, where there was a lot of focus on my career, um, and advancing myself through the organization, uh, and, you know, getting, getting, a bigger and better title and getting a bigger and better salary. And, um, you know, and then you start to realize that's that's a that's an empty way to live your life. Um, and there's a point at which the moment you step back and realize, you know what? It's kind of like survival state. And and to be honest with you, Miguel, I didn't. It, it now that I think about it, it kind of clicked in for me when I started to get more and more involved in the world of startups, and and when I was directly involved in the startup myself. I, I started to realize that it kind of really is all about survival state. Life is about survival state. For Chris Hatfield in outer space, it's about survival state. You're on a mission. Absolutely. There's a journey. There's a destination. But if you can wake up every day in the morning and start off by saying, am I healthy? Do I have a roof over my head, food in the fridge? Am I able to pay for the rent? And am I surrounded by some loved ones? You know, um, That's kind of it from the day you're born to the day you die, like, that's really it. And, you know, whether you've got a a fast car in the driveway, or a, a second cabin in the woods, or a boat on the water, you know, we all have our toys and our kind of desires. But especially when we go through this really challenging time with COVID and the pandemic and and we started to see, you know, so many lives being lost and and each of us, I'm sure, have our family members that we worry are at risk. I mean, you know, one of the things that a situation like this pandemic does do for us, it certainly did for me, is to step back again and say, well, look, like there's a lot going on, but um, at the end of the day, you know, I'm Pretty grateful for the fact that I'm I, I live in a I live in a great country. Um, I've I've got I've got my basic needs taken care of. I'm surrounded by some loving family and friends. I've got food in the fridge. Um, I don't actually have a lot to complain about. I'm 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 living a sustainable. I'm in survival state. I'm living a sustainable life. Uh, after that, it goes back to what I said earlier: is when you know you've got that. Then you step back and say, "I've got, you know, sixteen, 18 hours in a day. What am I doing with that time? And am I I think I'd probably close out Miguel by saying, we kind of have a choice. We can either consume, which is what a lot of us do, especially in North America. It's all about consuming and feeding our appetites. Or I often say, and I say this to my daughter, I say, you know, there's other things you could be thinking about. You could either be creating, with your hands, you could be cultivating your mind or you could be contributing to your community. And I I try to do that and I certainly try to get my daughter to think about that every waking hour of the day, you're either consuming and we all know where that eventually is gonna take our planet if we consume in great volume um, without keeping our appetites in check or we could be thinking about what each of us could do as an individual to create, cultivate and contribute and I would hope that, uh, you know, if, if each of us sort of take our, some time every morning to think about what we're doing with those hours, and are we creating, cultivating and contributing, then, you know, I think we're going to be building a better and better world around us.
0: I completely agree. And with this, we wrap up this podcast. Thank you so much for all the time that you put into this interview and also the preparation that came into it. And I really appreciate talking to you. Hopefully you'll come back to the podcast again um, and we can keep, keep discussing the plenty of material that there is to discuss about startups and funders and investors. Uh, thank you so much, Chris. Uh, Mickey, any last words do you want to say?
1: I was just going to say, Miguel, thanks so much. It was great to be here. And, and I hope your listeners uh, benefited from some of what was discussed. Uh, and absolutely uh, love to come back another time if you if you think there's some... Um, some new topics you'd like to run through for sure.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much. All right. So thank you to all the listeners. Um, You can find us in YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Spotify, and hopefully we're moving to new platforms uh, coming, but that will be announced later. Thank you. Thank you everybody. Bye-bye.